We respectfully acknowledge the University of Arizona is on the land and territories of indigenous peoples. Today, Arizona is home to 22 federally recognized tribes, with Tucson being home to the Autumn and Yaqui. Committed to diversity and inclusion, the university strives to build sustainable relationships with sovereign native nations and indigenous communities through education offerings, partnerships, and community service. program designed specifically to bring students who are coming straight out of high school and to put them through an undergraduate and graduate degree. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us for episode 55 in season three. Today, we speak with Dr. Bridget Calhoun. Dr. Calhoun has been a PA since 1992. She had worked in transplant surgery at the University of Pittsburgh, but ultimately was intrigued by research and went on to get her doctorate in public health with a focus on infectious disease and microbiology. Dr. Calhoun served as a program director for the PA program at Duquesne University for 20 years and is now the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Research in the School of Health Sciences. She has served in a multitude of leadership positions in PAEA and the National Commission on Certification of PAs, and she is the current liaison between the Pennsylvania Society of PAs and the State Department of Health. As always, you can learn more about our guests at our website, www.papathpodcast.com. We hope you enjoy this show. Well, uh, Bridget, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today and talk about your career as a PA, your illustrious career as a PA, and also as a PA educator and leader. Uh, Let's start with talking about your own path to becoming a PA. How did that all get started? Yeah, that's a great story, actually. So when I was in high school, I knew that I was drawn to something in the medical field. I didn't have physicians in my family, but my mother was an OR nurse. And so I was intrigued by the stories that she would tell me and and learn as much as I could about the days that she was in in the OR and what she was seeing and had the opportunity actually to go in the OR with her one day. And that kind of sealed it that I knew I wanted to work probably in a surgical setting. And then it was just a matter of what profession it was. So one day I came home from school and when I was in 11th grade and on the piano was some literature from the old Hahnemann program because my mother, as the OR nurse she was, she was considering going back to school to become a PA. I'm the I'm the fourth of four. So getting me out to and go to college was, you know, I think a, a time where it was possible for her to start thinking about going back to school. So I just sat down and read all of this, you know, information on this wonderful profession. And that was it. I knew that was what I wanted to do. And thankfully, my mother took me down for some of their open houses. And it was a very big disappointment when I learned that they only wanted people who were already working in medicine. You know, it was a a graduate program and, and being in high school, I didn't have many options at that point. But I did start looking into programs that you could attend straight out of high school. And that's what I did. I found St. Francis in Loretto, Pennsylvania, my home state. And it was a it was a natural fit. I loved their program. And I was fortunate enough to be able to play softball there too while I went through the program. So there was two reasons why I was attracted to St. Francis and neither of them was the physical location (laughs) because it was a little different from where I grew up, but it was a great path. It was a great school and it was a great opportunity for me. So, so the the curriculum is what really kind of moved you that direction because you figured this out so early in your life. 
Yeah, definitely. So the, the availability to go straight out of high school is what really uh, intrigued me and appealed to me. So I had kind of a short list at the time of programs that were designed and configured that way. Mm-hmm. And St. Francis, for me, was the best fit. That's fantastic. And what position did you play in softball? I was a catcher. Oh, <laughs> I was a that's, catcher. <laughs> wow. I, I have a lot of respect for catchers. That's tough. Well, it's, it's funny because in, in uh, collegiate softball, a lot of times people don't know that you can actually, you know, you're calling pitches, right? So it's it's a very active role. It was a great role. And yeah, I really had a good time. And how are your knees doing at this age? Uh, well, <laughs> I, I coach my son's uh, little baseball team. And one day I thought I would I would be the catcher for some pitching practice. And, and that and that lasted about four minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and I was someone else. I, yeah. I did catching for just a little bit. And it was that that I, it drove me to first base and outfield because I just yeah. couldn't say, stay in that squatted position all the time. I know. And that's what's so frustrating. Like I could do it for hours, right? We played double headers all the time. In college, we had a fall season. We had a spring season. Season and you know I could just spot like that for hours, but not anymore. That's awesome. <laughs> so so St. Francis had a five year program then. Was it right? Uh... So St. Francis no, they only had a four year program. So okay. I graduated in 1992 with a BS. With a BS, okay. Yep. And and so you had two years of classic undergrad core courses, and then two years of PA school. Yes, correct, including the summers. Yep. Okay. And what happened after graduation? Yeah, so I, instead of going back to Philadelphia, which was in my original plan, I met my my future husband, and so I stayed in the Pittsburgh area while he finished school, and I got a wonderful job at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and I worked in transplant surgery, which was fascinating. I was the first PA to work on the, on the kidney transplant service, mm-hmm. and it was a learning opportunity for all of us, including the surgeons and the nursing staff and the residents and the fellows and me, And it, but it was a really amazing time. That was when they were doing the first xenotransplant, the first baboon liver. It was when they were doing the first combined kidney pancreas transplants. We were doing infusions of just islet cells as opposed to the whole pancreas at the time. I mean, there was a lot going on. Um, Some of the surgeons who rotated with us, they were from various countries around the world, but they were the best surgeons in their country. So there was a lot of vying for time in the OR, but that also meant that the PAs who were there on the floor you know, we were we were pretty much running the floors because the residents and the fellows, they all wanted to know these and learn these very sophisticated surgical techniques, right? Where in some cases they were taking pediatric kidneys and putting them into adults. And that's far more common now, but but at the time in 1992, that was that was pretty cutting edge. And so many of the, the surgeons and residents and fellows wanted to be purely in the OR. So those of us who were on the floor really had great experience working with the immunosuppression and the rejection, and they were still surgical patients, but they were in end-stage renal failure. And yeah. it was really a wonderful time to learn everything about dialysis and immunosuppression. And it was great. Everything was great, except... I didn't have formal training in research, right? And there's all this amazing research going on around me. And the only thing really I participated in was randomizing people into our clinical trials. Mm -hmm. And I knew immediately I wanted more. I wanted to be able to do more. I wanted more responsibilities. I wanted the PAs around me to also participate in some of the research. And so it's then that I decided to go back to school. And across the street from the hospital was the Graduate School of Public Health. And you know, day by day, manipulating the immune system for our transplant patients. I was just totally intrigued by that and decided to pursue additional school in infectious diseases and microbiology. And that was the path I took. So I first enrolled in a master of public health, right? So I earned my MPH degree, 
but very quickly realized that, oh, I think I want my doctoral degree in the same thing, in infectious diseases and microbiology. Um, but it was a really long path because it was a very traditional dissertation-based program. And so once you go so far in public health, and at least at my institution at the University of Pittsburgh, then you had to decide, you know, do you want to work with viruses or bacteria or fungus? And I said, oh, I want to do viruses. And then you go a little further and then they said, okay, which virus? Do you want to do EBV or HIV? Or there was a very well-respected lab of hepatitis. And, you know, what, what virus do you want to work on? And so I said, yeah, I'll do HIV. And then my program required a 12-month residency. Mm-hmm. So I had to work in clinic for 12 months. I ended up staying a little bit longer <laughs> and then did my dissertation on the metabolic consequences of antiretroviral therapy, which was wonderful. And then finally graduated after many years with my DRPH degree. Wow. So during that, the initial part of your master's and doctoral training or education, were you still working at UPMC and transplant? No, not at all. So I had left and come to Duquesne, actually. And I was the clinical coordinator in the the PA program first, um, but then resigned from Duquesne and and went and did my residency and then stayed for another two years and then came back to Duquesne. So my days in the OR were were over, even though I thought I would would someday retire out of the OR. (laughs) But it's funny how your path changes as you go. That's amazing. So so you must be so excited. I, I just saw this weekend news about the HIV vaccine and mm-hmm. and showing some real promising outcomes so far. Um, yeah. And, and we've come know, so far with so many things with HIV. Yeah, so far. I mean, we were doing vaccine trials 15 years ago, but they unfortunately didn't amount to anything really. But yeah, and even keeping keeping pace with the fact that we can now take organs from people who are HIV positive and transplant them into recipients who are HIV positive. I mean, the, you know, the, the two, my two worlds have definitely overlapped over the past several years. And, and for our audience uh, that may not be aware, UPMC is a legendary institution for transplant. I mean, it really yes. is the one uh, when you're in clinical practice, the one that you typically hear about. Right, um, right. So that had to be such a great experience for you. Oh, wonderful. And and they utilized PAs well. The residents and the fellows who work there rely heavily on the PAs in the workforce there. So yeah, it's a really great place. Now we send our students there um, for their surgical experiences and they hire many of our graduates. And so it's really nice to see that um, they continue to utilize PAs so well. Wonderful. So what led to your decision to move to Duquesne and get into education? I mean, the clinical coordinator job is a really good entry-level academic job. You you came into that. Uh, obviously, you were in transition with your, your academic uh, history. Mm-hmm. But what led to you kind of deciding to take that on and then also return to that? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think I was um, at the time working in in transplant surgery. I mean, the hours are long, right? There's there are great days where there's incredible surgical success, and then there are really sad days, right? Where we may have called someone in for for a new kidney, and the kidney arrived, and turns out the kidney wasn't um, viable, or the surgeon decided that you know they weren't going to use it. And so there there are disappointing days too, right? In in clinical practice, no matter what you do, but um, it seemed like in this field the, the lows were really low. And so I think you know there was some period of of a little bit of feeling a little bit of some fatigue because of the hours and never knowing when the organs were going to come in and 
you know, that sort of thing. So a, a more predictable schedule <laughs> was appealing. But I also had a, had a very strong interest in teaching. I mean, we, we had students with us all the time, whether they were pharmacy students, nursing students, PA students, medical students. And so I really liked that aspect of clinical practice as well. So I heard that the local PA programs were looking for some faculty. And Duquesne wasn't the only place that I interviewed at. But I really thought that it would be a nice way to, you know, to expand your teaching repertoire, I guess, and, and impact the next group of of future clinicians. So I love Duquesne. I love the institution. It's very well respected. The program was relatively new when I came, um, but now we've graduated over a thousand PAs. You know, we graduated our thousandth PA in 2021. So it's a longstanding program and um, yeah, it just really appealed to me to be working full-time in education. There are interesting similarities between your challenges as an 11th grader, as I understand it, and your outcome to go to St. Francis and Duquesne, right? Right. Yeah, sure. So both are are faith-based institutions. They're both Catholic institutions. Um, People often ask me, you know, are there limitations to teaching at a Catholic institution? You know, can you teach about birth control? Can you teach about abortion? Can you, you know, can you teach about those things? And I don't see it at all as a limitation because we've never been told we can't teach about those things because they're, you know, they happen and and we have to be prepared to, to care for all patients. But in my world, it also gives us a little more freedom, right? Like if a student says, well, what do you do if a patient asks you to pray with them? Or what do you do if a family asks you to pray with them? You know, we can at least have those discussions. And so I don't see it as a limitation at all. I see it a little more freeing, actually. Yeah. And almost, I mean, I'm I'm relatively new to the public institutional world, but to me, when you're a healthcare provider, it's about the person. And Mm -hmm. if that's important to the person participating or reflecting or closing your eyes and clasping your hands together out of respect for your patient. Right. It's certainly the the bare minimum we should be teaching anywhere, right? It's right, not, not about us when we're in that role. It's about them. Correct. Agreed. Yeah. 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 So when you returned with your doctorate to Duquesne, what role did you take on at that point? Yeah. So I became program director in 2001. Big job, of course. <laughs> and, um, you know, one that was I entered in with enthusiasm, but I also knew I had to rely on some others and some veterans and some very important mentors who could help me maneuver through the system and learn the system and and really try to make good and wise decisions for the program. So I was program director for over 20 years, which is a long time. <laughs> but you know, during that time, I obviously learned a lot and then got to serve a little bit in some mentor roles, right, where I, I got to help some of my graduates who went through Duquesne's program who are now working in other educational programs in various capacities, and some of whom are program directors now. So it was yeah. a really nice, a really nice opportunity. There are a lot of stressors, as everyone listening to this podcast, I'm sure, knows about being a program director. Your work is never done. You know, there's always something that could be made better and improved. There are student issues, there are faculty issues, there are administrative issues, there are clinical placement issues, budget issues. It's it's really a lot, but it allowed me to really learn and get a great understanding of how higher ed works. And that's yeah. what led me to my, my current position, which is Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Research, still at Duquesne in Pittsburgh. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and so in this new role, what is your level of responsibility? What do you have to do? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, in many institutions, 
the associate dean position may be separate. So there may be an associate dean for academic affairs and then another one for research. I think we will ultimately go that direction here at Duquesne, but for now in the School of Health Sciences, I serve as the associate dean for academic affairs and research. So the academic affairs side allows me to be involved in the accreditation maintenance actually of all of our programs. So uh, athletic training, occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech language pathology, uh, health management systems, biomedical engineering. So I really get a broad exposure to how accreditation works for all of those disciplines. So I see all the reports that go in. I see all the self-studies, um, any other activities that have to be done in terms of site visits and, and those sorts of accreditation maintenance activities. So I oversee all of those, as well as all of the academic policies and implementation that directly affects students. So all of the handbooks and if we have any dismissals or if we have any appeals or students taking leaves of absence, those sorts of things. And then one very other important role that I have is to consider growth of our academic programming. So what areas would be a good place to start a new major? Um, we recently started a public health minor degree, which is um, really timely and certainly of interest of mine, um, but also to think about, you know, what is the workforce going to command in five years, seven years, 10 years, so that we can continue to contribute to the workforce in such meaningful ways. So that's the that's the academic affairs bucket, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then the, the research side is really um, helping some junior faculty with grant proposals, whether they be internal or external, whether they be small, some grant programs that may be, you know, $10,000 or less, or ones that may be federal programming, which could be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, and just kind of maneuvering through those systems and um, making sure people are, are writing very strong statements of purpose and, and those sorts of things. Then we also have the issues when faculty get large grants about the buyout and how do we cover course buyouts and, and what is permissible and what is not permissible for the grant funding to be used for. And then of course, to, to share the, the great news with everyone else, right? In terms of how can we help disseminate and, and get the results of their research out so that it may help them find other sources of, of support in the future. So together, those two really kind of define what I do now. Um, I, I, I'm also very fortunate that I still get to teach in the PA program, and that's really obviously an, of interest of mine. And then also now I get to teach in the public health program. So nice. um, it's, really, it's really a great position that I have right now. And, and there's versatility in who I'm teaching. My current One of my courses this semester is Introduction to Epidemiology, and I have 98 students in there. But they're pharmacy students, nursing students, health science students, biology students. Um, there's a really wide mix of who all's there. So I really have a great opportunity to, to interact with students of many different disciplines now. That's exciting. I mean, a lot of times when you think about grants, right, that first grant that you cut your teeth on, that, that $10,000 NCCPA grant or Be the yeah. Change grant or the PA Foundation grants or what have you, you know, they're just, it's a nice way for a junior faculty member to get something um, that they've achieved in their early years that gives them a chance to think about how to put together a project and manage a project and finish it. And then when you get to the big federal grants that are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, um, that's when you really can take those innovative ideas and create a great synergy between an institution, stakeholders in the community, and your research passion. So that's yeah. super cool that you get a chance to be mentoring all those folks for that. 
Yeah, it's wonderful. And and to echo what you just said, yeah, there, there are opportunities for, for PA educators everywhere, whether they be internal to your institution or as you described, many of our authoritative organizations. But taking that first step is scary, but there are people who are willing to help, right? And writing your first IRB proposal and, and responding to questions from the IRB or um, in some places, uh, you know, people get audited by the IRB. So all of those can be kind of daunting tasks, but there, there are many of us who have maneuvered through all of those situations and you know we all know how friendly and welcoming and supportive the PA world is so I hope people are, are able to find a mentor who can help them and not be intimidated by the process because we need more PAs doing research we need more PAs taking leadership roles in research projects and really start to you know advocate for the profession and the research that we could do which may not even be related to our profession right it may be yeah. maybe related to our area of, of medicine and expertise but if you're not familiar with what's available at your institution, there are probably things that you can attend on campus. So your Office of Sponsored Research is a great resource. Other senior people, whether they be in your department or external to it, you know, if you can find someone who's had success in writing grants, getting grants, publishing, you know, people are generally really willing to help help people guide through the through the system. And Bridget, for our our newer faculty, IRB is. Oh, good. Right. So I'm sorry. So every institution, hospital, academic facility will have a institutional review board. So that's the IRB. But then there's usually something at the end. So they will have an institutional review board for human subjects. They will have an institutional review board for animal subjects. Right. And so this is an oversight committee that looks to make sure that the subjects, whether they be animals or people in research programs and, and endeavors are treated the way they're supposed to be, right? And that means disclosure of risks and benefits of participating, if there's any compensation for participating, why the research is being done, what is the rationale for the research. And so it's it's a it's an oversight to make sure that the research is being conducted in a way that it should be. Typically, you can't start your research until you have IRB approval. And some of the most common questions that I field are, when do you know if you need IRB approval? And your individual institutions can guide you on that as well. But essentially, if you're collecting data for research purposes, you need oversight. <laughs> and sometimes they'll come back and tell you the project may be exempt. Other times they may tell you that it needs a certain level of review. So it may need a full IRB review. Many of our clinical research projects require that because we're, we may be doing invasive procedures, you know, even if it's just giving contrast for a CT scan, right? If we're, sure. if we're administering something for my dissertation, we were, we were imaging the coronary arteries and doing calcium scoring for, to see if there were um, blockages in their coronary arteries. And so we would have to give a beta blocker to lower their heart rate a little bit. Then we would give the contrast material. And so that obviously required full IRB approval because we were doing things and exposing them to the radiation and, and all those yeah. other things. So the purpose of the IRB is really to protect the human subject or animal subject and make sure that things are, are being done with the proper oversight and uh, proper techniques, I guess. Sure. And ultimately, you're not going to be able to get published or finish that grant if you don't have an IRB to refer to because they all want to see that you've gone through the proper channels. Yes, yes. And right, you know, like we said, writing your first one can be a little scary, but um, no doubt there is someone at your institution who can help you 
maneuver that system. Definitely. Absolutely. And if you find that person that's had real good success, that's willing to mentor you, oh my gosh, they have, they have the magic formula already. So right, you just, right. just work with them. You share the credit, you kind of see one, do one, teach one. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about Duquesne University. I know you're no longer in the program director role, but clearly they report to you and you have a good sense of the program. And after doing 20 years, you certainly understand what makes a successful applicant get into your PA school and succeed. So let's hear your kind of elevator pitch for a a prospective applicant. What is Duquesne University and why should we consider it? Yeah, great. So Duquesne was very innovative many decades ago, because this was the first institution that had a program designed specifically to bring students who are coming straight out of high school and to put them through an undergraduate and graduate degree. So ours is a five-year program, which includes three summers. There are three years of the pre-professional phase where students meet all the academic requirements for the undergraduate Duquesne degree and also get their sciences that they will require for the accredited phase of the program that spans the 27 months afterwards. So students complete the third year, and then they stay on campus for the summer semester, which starts the accredited phase. That can be a little challenging for some of our students because they're not really accustomed to going to school full-time at the pace that we go in the summer months when their friends are off to the beach and to concerts or so. But generally, the students that, that get accepted here have demonstrated academic talent and, and high aptitude very early on in their educational pursuits. So we enroll a class of 40 every year. And so during the accredited phase, it's it's much like the other programs um, in terms of curricular content. Um, but we do have some very specific things that are unique to Duquesne, one of which I'll mention um, is a course called Disparities in Healthcare. And this course was started 15 years ago. So this was way ahead of the, the attention that has been really garnered nationally and internationally about disparities in, in healthcare and social determinants of health. So this is an undergraduate course that all of our students take to really help them understand, well, health literacy plays a part and socioeconomic plays a part and stability and, and support system and all of those things that can that will impact their future patient. And so we carry that theme all the way through our program to really pay incredible attention to the social determinants of health and, you know, all of those aspects that um, contribute to good care of patients, right, and respectful care of patients. So we continue that theme through, and then based on where we are here in Pittsburgh, healthcare is now one of our major industries, right? Healthcare and higher education are, are what really Pittsburgh is known for now, as opposed to the steel industry <laughs> that we were known for uh, generations ago. So we have many opportunities and, and places where we can send our students for their clinical training. We have community-based hospitals that are still private. We have very large UPMC facilities, which is one of the largest health systems in the country. But we also have both urban and rural because the state of Pennsylvania is both rural and urban as well. Um, So we have a lot of opportunities to send our students and and many of them get hired for the region and here locally. So then can serve as preceptors for us and lecturers for us and all of those wonderful ways that they can augment our program. What we find uh, among our applicants, which which may be different from some of the other institutions, is we've found a way here to help support some student athletes. So we don't use that, of course, for any of our admission criteria, but nonetheless, we have found that we here in the School of Health Sciences have a really good working relationship with our swimming coach, with our track and field coach, with our soccer coaches. We know them, they know us, and so if we have a talented student athlete who wants to come to Duquesne and still continue on with their athletic career, we're able to 
to, to try to make that work. And because of that working relationship with the academic side and athletic side, we've had incredible student athletes come through. We had a All-American soccer player who was redshirted his freshman year, but yet played during this clinical year, which is which is almost unheard of, right, for a D1 athlete. Last summer, we had a student who was in the accredited phase go to the Olympic trials for, for swimming, which is just amazing, right? So we have been able to help support our student athletes because they're, despite the time commitment for their sport, they use their time wisely. They set realistic goals. They they make milestones as they go. They make important priorities. And so we found a really, a really nice way to help support some of these student athletes. And I think because of that, and because of people know about us in that capacity, we attract a lot of student athletes. That's super cool. I mean, the traditional PA school would not typically want to put up with those shenanigans because they want them to focus solely on, right. you know, becoming a great PA, but you can do both. And and you're right. They're very disciplined uh, yes. people generally. So that that's, yeah. that's amazing. Just interesting how that mirrors your background, <laughs> right? I, I do think that that has something to do with it. And, you know, as wonderful as my experience was at St. Francis in all ways, um, I do feel like my my professors had no idea I was in a sport. And my, my coach at the time didn't know how rigorous the PA program was. And so I really felt like there was a disconnect there. And then ultimately had to stop playing, right? So I think I still have a year of, of college eligibility. eligibility if I ever go back, right? But kidding, of course. But but I think that was a, that would have been important for me. I think it would have been nice to to be able to have people understand that yeah, right after class we have pitchers and catchers practice, and then we have we have to go lift, and then we have to go run, and then we have to yeah. you know, do all of those things that come along with with being a student athlete. Um, so yeah, so I think we do have a very supportive environment here. And I jokingly said one time to our swimming coach, I said, Hey, I need some, I need some Duquesne swimming and diving gear. Like I, I do as much recruiting for your program as you do. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Which exactly true. But you know, if we have students who are coming out of high school and they know they want a PA, they want to be a PA, um, Duquesne is a great option for them. So are your students, cause that in my experience, there's, you know, a lot, I mean, maybe there's a lot, but it seems like the majority of students kind of get this epiphany while they're in college. They oh, have sure. or they they have a loved one that has a medical emergency. They meet a PA and suddenly they're driven to become a PA, but they're already in school as the declared major in something. Right. So right. you're it sounds like your school, because it's so unique, you're really kind of gaining attention from around the country for all those high schoolers who already know what they want to do. Yeah, that's true. Well, since, you know, since our program started here with this model, there have been many who who now follow this model. So there might be more schools like us than you think. You know, PIEA has data certainly on the number of our programs like this. But, you know, there, there are a lot of people who know that this is the career for them pretty early on. A typical admission cycle for us is somewhere between seven to 800 applications. I know graduate programs, you know, get in the 2000 to 3000 realm, but still, I mean, 800 applicants from high for 40 school seats. Who, yeah, for 40 seats is, is pretty good. So, yes, I think there's a there's probably more students than you might realize who who understand that they want to be a PA earlier, which which puts a lot of responsibility on us reading their essays. Right. Why? Why do they why do they want to see this sometime or why do they want to pursue this major? Sometimes we see they write in their essay that they think this will be a good stepping stone for med school. Mm. And obviously, you know, that's not something that we 
recommend they write. That we recommend, <laughs> right, right? Because we want to give these these highly coveted seats to people who love the profession as much as I do and as much yeah. as you do. Yeah. And so, you know, coming down, looking at each applicant, you know, it may be a little different than if we were in a purely graduate program, like many of the listeners will be. Yeah. Years ago, I saw some data, I think it was from the AAPA or NCCPA that less than 1% of PAs go on to medical school. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think it's, we do a pretty good job of finding, I think we're different sociologically. I I just think we're generally different. So, so if I'm a college student um, and I decide as a sophomore or junior that I want to become a PA, is there a path that Duquesne for me? Yes, absolutely. So um, we try to engage applicants as early as possible so that we can help show them and 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 tell them really, you know, how do you pick a program that's going to fit for you and how do you how do you make sure that the program you enroll to can be your home for five years and three summers, <laughs> right? Because that's that's quite a commitment. So we invite our students as soon as we know they may be a prospective student to our open houses. Last Friday we had callback day for my fifth year students, and we invited some prospective students to join us via. Zoom to hear some of the case presentations that our fifth year students were were giving. So we really try to engage prospective applicants who appear to be qualified early and they could see really what the what the Duquesne experience is like. Um, Because of our religious affiliation, we have mass many times a year that our PA students attend and, and we do as well. We have mass for the healing professions where the priest will come and bless all of our hands and we have a mass at the end of the year for our cadavers, right? The the people whose generosity has contributed to their education in a way that no one else can. You know, I, I tell prospective students this all the time during open houses, you know, your parents who pay for it, your instructors who provide this education, we all have a very important role, but nobody's going to you know, give you this hands-on kinesthetic learning of the human body like that generous donor. So we yeah. treat them with the utmost respect and and certainly celebrate their generosity and their life. That's wonderful. In that, in that way. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's a sacred, it's a sacred thing, right? Yeah, it is. The, yeah. the fact that they're willing to donate that, mm-hmm. that opportunity for students uh, is incredible. And we were just talking to, to Dr. Sadler about his contributions to organ donation. And we were talking about that exact same thing, like organ donation, again, such a altruistic thing to do for humanity. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. So you kind of had your, your, your uh, played on both sides of that. <laughs> totally. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I, I certainly advocate that for my family, as well as my friends and my students. And ultimately, when my children are old enough, I will, <laughs> I will also encourage them to fully donate. That's awesome. That's awesome. So I would imagine in your current role, you, you tend to see those student struggles that have risen above a program, regardless of whether it's PA or PT or what have you. Mm-hmm. Has your perspective changed over the years as a, a educator in terms of how to best support the wellness and health of students? Yeah, there have been so many things that have contributed to, I think, my my evolution and my understanding and empathy and sympathy for what some students have to go through. Certainly, the, the modern day cost of an education like this is burdensome on most families, right? So whereas before it was it was very concrete for us to say, yeah, don't work when you're in the program. And now we we understand that that it may being in the program may require the student to still work on weekends or you know on breaks or whatever. So I've seen that kind of evolution because of the cost of colleges these days. Um, I think I've also gotten a better understanding of how mental illness can manifest, right? And so, and sometimes it's very obvious in a person that they may be struggling. Other times people are quite skilled at, at really keeping it quiet and 
and um, not sharing with other people. So I think there's a better emphasis here among my colleagues to reach out directly to students. Like, how are you doing? Let's let's get a check in. And mm-hmm. certainly there have been some surveys that have been validated that, that we use here. And I know some of my other colleagues at other institutions use them, which are like sense of belonging surveys, you know, to just see, even if it's not a direct and formal support group, how supported do students feel? And you know, if I look back 20 years ago, I never would have been thinking like that. But now I think the changing environment in which we live and, and just culturally, we're seeing such a shift in the need to be more active in, in surveying for mental illness among our students. So I years think that ag- has really been changed. Yeah. Years ago, I had a medical director who was full time with one of my programs that i had worked at who he taught the mental health section of our course. And in doing that, he would administer the PHQ-9 or other tools so that the students could experience what the tool was like. And he collected that data anonymously. There was no name attached to the d- data, but, you know, routinely 25% of a class, and that, you know, that was a larger program, 25% of that class was you know, showing a relatively high score for depression on, on those depression scales. And I think number one, you're not alone. Nearly a quarter of people are struggling with this at one point in time. And then you add on the stress of PA school or the loss of a loved one or, mm-hmm. and also just the change, right? The change to move to a school and start a new life in a new community. We all have to be cognizant of how difficult this can be. Yeah, definitely. And then, you know, for, for the students that we serve, you know, COVID hit them at a very formative time. So they may have been in 11th grade or 12th grade, or it was their freshman year of college. And so rebounding from that too, you know, yeah. and for us working with the undergrads, it's really that for some of them that, that happened their freshman year. So the, the what a, a transition that's normally difficult became extremely difficult. Uh, yeah. For students. So, yeah, I think, and I'm glad there's a greater emphasis on, on wellness and prevention of burnout, which is of course is now in the standards. Yeah. I think we all just have to be completely aware of that. That's for sure. Yeah. Bridget, let's just uh, touch briefly on your, you've also been involved in state and national leadership. Currently, you are the liaison for the Pennsylvania Society of PAs and the Department of Health for uh, Pennsylvania. Yes. But that's not your first leadership go around. So do you want to just talk a little bit about your motivation to take on these additional roles and what you've enjoyed about it? Oh, my goodness. Well, I've had wonderful roles with PAEA, what was formerly known as the Faculty Development Institute. I was uh, chair of that for several years, which is how I got to meet you. That's right. <laughs> so I made I made some great connections and I, I've met colleagues you know, from different parts of the country by serving on these various committees. But that one was was probably one of the most near and dear to my heart because I really got to work um, as a mentor for people who were going through either the basic skill workshop or leadership workshops um, that were provided through our professional organization, which was great. And, and I could see these connections being made by members of the audience and by attendees and, and really just broadening our, our pool and our mass of PA educators. So that was a wonderful opportunity. And, and I, I loved it. I hated to give it up, but the, the travel just got to be a lot because I had two small children. So sure, I had sure. to you know, I had to move on to from that to something else. But one of my most longstanding uh, service to our profession was as serving as the chair, one of the chairs of the recertification exam development committee with the NCCPA. And I did that for 
probably 15 years or so. It was it was wonderful. The people who write our exams are wonderful people <laughs> with incredible expertise and incredible knowledge and intellect and really do it for the right reason. They just want to make sure that we're all keeping you know, we're keeping up our knowledge and that we're safe in providing care for folks. But some of those meetings got intense, you know, like we would be writing questions and we would be, you know, fighting over the the distractors and, and should it really be worded this way? And if this is really what you want the person to have, you have to make them sicker or, oh, this person, is, you know, the, the scenario is written where the person is, you know, sicker than they would normally present. And so some of those discussions got, got pretty intense. But at the end of the day, it was all about making the questions as, as perfect as possible. And, and I learned a lot from the folks at NCCPA. I continue to learn from them, um, even though I'm no longer in that position. But all of these opportunities just really contributed to my understanding of how things work, right? How is it that somebody, like, what are the back workings of, of developing a certification exam? And then you get to be a better test writer. And then you come back to your program. And then you teach everyone else at your program how to be better test writers. And my work with PAEA in terms of helping faculty get comfortable in their new role, I brought it back to my program and, and implemented the same things. And you know, now in my role uh, as a liaison to the Pennsylvania Department of Health, it's perfect because of my public health background. And so um, being one of the few PAs in that uh or at that table yeah. really allows me to, to make sure we have a voice in some of the initiatives that are being developed. Right now we're, we're revising our state health improvement plan. So there's representation from dentistry and medicine and nursing. And I'm just so happy to be the representative and the voice of the PAs at that table. That's fantastic. That diversity of background that you have really, I'm sure contributed to you getting an invitation for that. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, been it's been great. I have to say, uh, before we close, I, I, as I look back over the years of PAEA, if you're if you're a PA, I was just looking at data today, and there's a bunch of PAs listening to this that aren't educators yet. So if you are a PA and you're kind of nervous about joining the educational realm, boy, oh boy, PAEA, because of the work of you and so many before you, Tony Miller and Anita mm -hmm. Glicken and many, 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 many Mark others. Simon, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's been a culture of, of collective improvement from uh, PA education so that we can all rise to the level of being better educators. And so I, I just want to commend you for that work because I know how important it was at the time you did this. Our our PA profession growth was just exponential and uh, people needed some extra things. And the other part of that, I think that is really not talked about as much, but I've certainly seen these patterns of collegiality in the podcast. There's so much more connection between sharing of ideas across programs now from those connections at PAEA than perhaps there had been when we were a smaller profession. Yeah, absolutely. And those connections, I mean, when you think about who your mentors are, they don't have to be someone that you can walk to their office. I mean, many times, you know, we're calling them on the phone or we're doing, you know, Zoom calls or shooting an email across the country, right? Checking the time zone to make sure they're up. But you know, my mentors are all, all across the country and, and many of them, I still reach out despite having 20 years experience. So those yeah. connections are incredibly important. I agree. Yeah. Well, before we close, we always give our guests an opportunity to share anything else that we didn't get a chance to cover. Is there anything you were hoping to talk about? 
No, just I guess the point you just made is, you know, for folks who are still in the clinical world who think that they may have an interest in teaching, it's so wonderful. And, you know, there are people who are willing to help you make that transition. It's unlikely, actually, that, you know, those of us who wanted to be clinicians had formal training in education, right, while we were pursuing our, our graduate degree in, as a PA. So it's okay if you don't have formal education in education, <laughs> because we can provide that. Really, what we need is your expertise. So we need your patients with students as they learn, because that, you know, that that can take some some level of patience. But if that suits you, if that fits with your fabric and your makeup, then please think about joining a, a local program, either as a guest lecturer or as a preceptor or ultimately maybe as a full time full time educator. Absolutely. Well, Bridget, thank you so much for your time today. It's so great to catch up with you and we wish you well in your, your role and with the uh, institution. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed our conversation. Well, we want to thank our guest, Dr. Bridget Calhoun, for sharing her story and her time with us so that we could learn about Duquesne University and about the diverse background of Dr. Calhoun. Her contributions to the science in HIV and for PA educators is remarkable, and it is clear she has built a wonderfully thoughtful program at Duquesne. Tune in next week as we speak with Dr. Matt Dane Baker from Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Dr. Baker is the interim provost for his institution and a longstanding PA leader and educator. He shares his story to becoming a PA, his story of his service to our country in the Air National Guard, and his perspective on the PA profession. We also want to wish you all a very happy holiday season. We'll be wrapping up season three with our next two episodes before we take a short break in the early part of 2023. Our season-ending reflection episode will be released on January 2nd. Until next time, we wish you success with whatever path you are walking in life, and thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policies of the University of Arizona.